Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1200, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Good morning. It is 8.30 on Wall Street. I'm Michael McKee along with Tom Keene. Economic Indicators brought to you by Commonwealth Financial Network. When it's time to change the conversation, talk with a broker-dealer RIA that's ready to listen. Call 866-462-3638 or visit Commonwealth.com to learn more. Here's Vinny Del Judice at the First Word Desk. Michael, we start with a glimpse this week of manufacturing just out from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. It's regional manufacturing index, the Empire State Index, coming in at negative nine. This is a main number. Economists had expected an increase of surprise. This sets the stage for two key Fed reports this week, industrial production and capacity utilization and the Federal Reserve's minutes of its prior policy meeting. That meeting, officials seem to be tilting toward perhaps a rate increase this year. Also on the calendar, figures on housing starts, building permits, the consumer price index, and existing home sales. At the Bloomberg First Word Desk, I'm Vinny Del Judice. Let's go back to New York. Thank you, Vinny. Well, Vinny brings up a very good point. We're going to have a lot of data this week. Last week's uh, concluded with the retail sales report coming in much stronger than expected, and you start this week with a down number on manufacturing. Where is the U.S. economy? Let's ask Simon French. He's chief economist at Panmir Gordon, uh, based in London. Uh, the world looks to the U.S., Simon. Uh, and at this point, uh, how do you decide whether the U.S. economy is getting better or just sort of treading water? Because then uh, that leads us to the questions about what the Fed's going to do. Yeah, good morning, Mike. Uh, well, the Empire State number that ju- has just hit the wires, that, that sends a somewhat conflicting message to the very upbeat retail sales numbers that we had just at the back end of last week. Very difficult for a um, overtly data-dependent Federal Reserve to to make sense of all of this. And I think it strongly points towards the status quo. There is, i.e., unchanged interest rates in the U.S. Why, why move policy, risk the policy mistake in a world where aggregate demand, world trade is, is soft and softening further? I think it's, uh, there, you need all those lights on the dashboard to be flashing green. And to be honest, it's uh, quite a mix of green, amber, and red right now. And that's, that's very difficult for policymakers to justify and indeed give the confidence into markets when they change policy stance. Well, tomorrow we get uh, uh, CPI numbers. How important mm. is that going to be, in your mind, to the markets and then to Janet Yellen? Yeah, so inflationary pass-throughs from currency fluctuations are really the key aspect that we're looking at. Uh, In the last six months, we've been looking at core inflationary prints because, you know, policymakers in in Europe, in the U.S., in the U.K. have been saying, okay, we're looking through the transitory impacts of commodities, of oil, and we're wanting to look what core inflationary pressures are happening and wage settlements, trying to get to the bottom of these things. And therefore, the inflation print is helpful from that perspective, but given some of those trends that have driven um, sterling lower in the U.S. due to a strong dollar have started to reverse really since the start of the year, which starts to be inflationary through the imported goods route and stops to be uh, as deflationary domestically, you're starting to see a narrative having to shift, and therefore I wouldn't put a lot of weight on what comes later in the week in terms of the Fed minutes, because there's so much behind Mm -hmm. current events. 
Is it a monetary debate, Simon, or are we finally over after a sluggish first quarter and waiting for it to click in that it's actually going to be what everybody wants to hear about, which is a real economy debate? Well, I really hope it moves to a real economy debate because um, I sense a a global consensus is starting to emerge, and, and probably not in a formal setting, but an informal setting between the major central banks, recognizing, and they've been saying this for a long time, but I sense some of their action is beginning to, 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 to knit together, that beggar thy neighbor, currency, economics, monetary policy, competition, is not the way to, be, to get us out of a, a, the low-growth environment. And therefore, I really do hope we start to focus in on capacity utilization numbers, um, we start to look at productivity in a real sense and look at the synchronization between monetary policy and fiscal policy that, been, that has been sadly, sadly missing for most of the time since the financial crisis. What's the value to leaving interest rates uh, unchanged uh, if there is a possibility that the Fed is distorting the markets now? Well, this, this is where the macroprudential toolkit comes into play. And I think we, if we look at the, the, what is different, you know, those famous words in markets, what's different this time? Is it ever different this time? Well, I think what is different from the perspective of independent central banks is their readiness to use the macroprudential toolkit, the regulatory toolkit, rather than simply monetary policy in terms of demand management and sectoral risks that are emerging in terms of financial stability, in terms of real estate, in terms of the reaction to very, very low nominal yields. And therefore, from, from my perspective, the more interesting action will be in macroprudential interventions in 2016. Very, very little action is really foreseeable in, in, the mon in monetary policy and core yeah. traditional interest rate variation. But then, then quickly here, that gets back to real economy analysis. Are we just going to push that by the wayside while we mm. wait, wait, wait? Well, I, I guess it depends. You know, what is real for you, Tom, is different from what is real for me, is what is real for the guy on the high street in, in, and then also on Main Street. And you – it's very hard to understand the interconnectivity right now between dramatically lower nominal yields yeah. and what is happening in terms of business formation, business creation, zombie, for the fo zombie firm debate and the feedback into productivity right. levels. That's interesting. Simon, um, um, Simon French with us for the Pamir Gordon. We're going to come back uh, with him. This is a fascinating idea, folks, about what do we actually focus on uh, as we move to Brexit and as we move to the June 15th Fed meeting. Uh, as Mike mentioned, the economic data back and forth. I mean, Mike, what was your quick interpretation? Now the data, the secondary uh, data. Nobody really cares about the yeah, okay. empire number. That's good. That's valuable to know. No one cares. We like that on Vinnie Del Judice. Economic data. <laughs> this hour of surveillance brought to you by BMW Mount Kisco. Visit BMWMountKisco.com. Here's Michael Barr with news headlines. Mike, Tom, thank you very much. Donald Trump's latest remarks about Britain's Prime Minister and the Mayor of London are raising some eyebrows in the UK, appearing on ITV's Good Morning Britain. The presumptive Republican presidential nominee said he may have a poor relationship with British Prime Minister David Cameron. It comes after Cameron's criticism of Trump for calling for Muslims to be temporarily banned from entering the U.S. Trump also calls London's new Muslim mayor, Sadiq Khan, rude for calling him ignorant. 
Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders are trying to get in some last-minute campaigning before tomorrow's primaries in Kentucky and in Oregon. Here's a sentence that can make parents nervous with teen drivers. Can I borrow the keys? According to a new report, teen drivers can drastically reduce their risk of getting into a car crash just by agreeing to a few simple rules with their parents. Safe Kids Worldwide says these kinds of agreements can have a measurable effect on how much risky behavior that the teens are engaging behind the wheel. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists in more than 150 news bureaus around the world. I'm Michael Barr. Mike, Tom. Thank you, Michael. Time now for the Land Rover Parsippany Bloomberg NBC Sports Update with John Stashow. Thanks, Mike. Another Yankee win, another Met loss, and a big-time brawl in Sunday baseball. The Yanks, who started the season 9-17, and completed a 7-3 and homestand. They won all three series. They beat the first-place White Sox 7-5. Carlos Beltran with a milestone home run. Beltran became only the fourth switch hitter in the 400 home run club, joining Mickey Mantle, Eddie Murray, and Chipper Jones. Yanks at Arizona tonight. Mets are off before hosting Washington. They're now in third place after only nine losses in their first 26 games. Seven defeats on this road trip. Swept at Colorado, losing 4-3 on Ryan Rayburn's two-run pinch hit homer seventh inning. Yuenis Cespedes hit his 12th homer of the year. It was the Mets' fourth loss in a row. As for that brawl, Texas still upset by Jose Batista's backflip in last year's playoffs. Batista got hit by a pitch. Then went into second base with a hard late slide, and Rugnet Odor reacted with a shove and then landed a punch to Batista's jaw. I had a hard slide at second base. I could have, I could have injured him. I chose not to. I just tried to send a message that I didn't appreciate getting hit on, you know, whatever. There were eight ejections. The two teams do not play again this season. Speaking of Toronto, the Raptors are into the NBA's East Finals for the first time. They won Game Seven for Miami, 116 to 89. They'll play game one at Cleveland tomorrow. Game one of the NHL's West Finals. St. Louis over San Jose 2-1. Jason Day led all the way. The world number one took the Players' Championship by four shots and won 1.89 million, the richest prize in golf. With Bloomberg NBC Sports Update, I'm John Stashel. Uh John, thanks so much. Appreciate that very much. Michael McKee, uh, it was an interesting weekend. Not much sports. we got the horse race coming up here Yeah, you this week. What, you know what today is? 100 years ago today, mm. Mr. Sykes and Mr. Picot's agreement. Oh, my word. Yeah, very interesting. Sykes-Picot, which uh, it divided up yeah. the countries of the Middle East and led to yeah. what we have today. Shout out to the Imperial War Museum of London, England. I had a chance to see the T.E. Lawrence exhibit a decade ago, and they had his map of Sykes-Picot, hmm. which he used in fury. With his leadership long ago and far away. Simon French with us on the English economy. It's Bloomberg Surveillance. The sports report was brought to you by Land Rover Parsippany. The spring sales event is happening now. Visit LandRoverParsippany.com. Land Rover above and beyond. Global Business News, 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio, this is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by American Arbitration Association. Business disputes are inevitable. Resolve faster with the American Arbitration Association, the global leader in alternative dispute resolution for over 85 years. Learn more at ADR.org. 
Futures are a little changed this morning after a report showed manufacturing activity in the New York region unexpectedly contracted this month. A gauge on home builder sentiment is due later this morning. We check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg. S&P E-mini futures down a point, Dow E-mini futures down 20, and NASDAQ E-mini futures up almost two. The 10-year Treasury is down 8.30 seconds, the yield 1.72%. NYMEX crude oil up 2.1%, up 98 cents to 47.18 a barrel. COMEX gold up 1.3%, or $16.40 to 12.89 an ounce. The euro, $1.1338, the yen 108.76. Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway disclosing a stake in, in Apple. A regulatory filing shows Berkshire held 9.81 million Apple shares as of March 31st. The holding was valued at $1.07 billion at the end of the first quarter. And Apple shares rising this morning up 1.7%. And that's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, uh, thanks so much. Folks, it is 8.48 on Wall Street. The following is from Bloomberg View. Opinions and commentary from Bloomberg columnists. I'm Jonathan Bernstein, a columnist for Bloomberg View. Donald Trump's announcement that he won't release his tax returns is just the latest example of what a difficult challenge he presents to the press. The problem for the media is that once Trump refuses, it rapidly ceases to be news. It's just another thing that will disappear from public view long before voters start tuning in later this year. The challenge isn't limited to his refusal to release his financial records. The well-documented coverage of his blatant disregard for the truth hasn't deterred him from continuing to repeat the same falsehoods. There are also his outrageous statements, such as his insult that John McCain and other U.S. prisoners of war were not heroes. And then there's Trump's demonstrated ignorance of government and public affairs. How can reporters convey just how far from the norm Trump is as part of their coverage of the day-to-day campaign going forward? Normal cautions seem to me to fall short of the challenge Trump poses. It's going to take some innovative thinking to meet that challenge. I'm Jonathan Bernstein. For more view, please go to BloombergView.com or view go on the Bloomberg Terminal. This has been Bloomberg View. And Bloomberg View commentary can be heard hourly weekdays on Bloomberg Radio. Simon French uh, with us from Pamir Gordon. We've been looking at the U.S., looking abroad. Let's look at the United Kingdom now. Simon, give me a scope and scale housing statistic for the wackoness, the zaniness of the United Kingdom housing economy? Some of the valuations, Tom, are are absolutely eye-watering. It's one of the legacies of unchanged bank rate at 0.5% for nine years is that that hunt for yield has pushed the uh, price-wages ratio, particularly in prime London property, but it's spread out wider across the country, to ratios that we... It briefly saw in the Lawson boom of 1989, that was the previous Chancellor of the Exchequer in the UK in the late 80s, and then again prior to the financial crisis. And some of those ratios are way in excess now of of both those two previous peaks. What is sustainable, however, is the mortgage interest burden, which remains uh, of the order of 25 to 30% of net household income, and those stress points previously at cycles were north of 50%. So there's not an imminent pressure on household finances, but it will not take much movement both within the rates market and also within the labor market, which is absolutely key here for um, being able to service mortgages. That's the thing that we're watching to see whether those valuations are sustainable over the medium term. It's a debate in selected parts of America, the solution being build higher, taller buildings for residential. Where is that debate in London? 
Well, the debate in London has been uh, fervent around building more houses. The, the recent mayoral election that saw Sadiq Khan replace Boris Johnson as mayor of London was absolutely dominated around housing. And this off the backdrop of about 26 to 27,000 units per, per year being built in London, when requirements based on population growth are something of the order of 50,000. So we need a doubling in housing starts by the end of this decade just to keep pace with population growth. Yeah. So the conversation undoubtedly shifts to higher and also a lot of infilling. You compare London with a lot of other metropolitan centres around the world. It's actually quite – it's not as densely populated as a lot of areas. There are a lot of green spaces. Of course, there are public interest debates going on constantly to try and balance the, the requirement for, for green spaces uh, versus the requirement for property. But, I mean, planning law is at the very forefront of this debate. How much uh, is the Brexit debate contributing to that? Because there's talk that uh, we're seeing prices start to fall in London as people maybe anticipate a decline in financial sector employment should uh, people vote to leave the EU. Yeah, we spoke five, six weeks ago, didn't we, about the Brexit debate. And I think it's important to not overstate what is going on right now, not just within housing, but within the broader UK economy, which has been slowing really since Q1 2015, way before the referendum was announced. Brexit is an additional factor or additional risk off factor, but it isn't the most material uh, impact on what we've seen in terms of weak housing prints. There's been a significant amount of tax and regulatory burden added into UK. UK housing, an additional 3% stamp duty on, on additional properties for trying to address the buy-to-let sector, which has uh, got carried away in the recent years. And that uh, government intervention to try and cool the market is the type of thing well, that is, is pushing back transactions yeah. and pr- prices right now. Well, that's what's valuable is the guy idea of what can government do. We're having that in a few geographies again. I think of San Francisco, uh, New York, and Washington. Is any of it proving successful? Well, I would say that the recent tax um, changes established by the UK government has actually taken a lot of the froth out of the market. But you're absolutely right. There is, there is a, a limit on which government, on what government intervention can do, given the prevailing demographics, given the rate of household formation, given the fact that the UK has current net migration levels at about 330,000 per annum. That's adding an awful lot of demand in. And ultimately, government's most effective way at ensuring that all those people have places to live is to increase and actually uh, accelerate the speed with which homes are built. We need nationally about 200 to 250,000. We're running at about 140,000 at the moment. Mm-hmm. So uh, at this point, how concerned should we be about the UK economy and what the central bank does? Is there any way to tell until June 24th? Well, there'll be no action from the central bank. So let's go back to what Tom, we were talking about before the break in terms of the real economy here in the UK. And the, the, I've, I've written quite extensively about the fading of the E-numbers, those E-numbers that gave artificial stimulus to the UK economy. The exchange rate sterling was very strong in 14 and early parts of 15. Energy costs were falling, the second E. And then also earnings, real earnings were recovering after six, six and a half years of internal deflation in the, in the labor market. Actually, we saw wages 
started to return. Now, all those three factors, those E numbers, have started to turn in the opposite direction really since, the, uh, as I say, Q, Q1 2015. And you're seeing slowing PMIs that are challenging whether the government can deliver what is at the moment penned to be the most significant austerity and fiscal consolidation program anywhere in the G7. Indeed, you can widen that to anywhere in the G20. Mm. It's quite a big ask. It's a significant headwind for, uh, for the government. Governments like, like Napoleon's generals, they need to be lucky, not necessarily bright. Thus far, George Osborne has been a lucky chancellor. Certainly in recent years, he's had the right. macro, broader macroeconomy in his favor. That's starting to turn against him, and he, therefore he needs to be responsive to that. Simon, thank you so much. Simon French with Palmer Gordon. What a clinic that was on London real estate. Mike, I, I am told from outstanding reports from our surveillance London team, expert on this, I think Brie Taylor said she's going to live in Dublin, commute, <laughs> something like you're, that. Uh, you're not investing? Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Your your weekend getaway place? Yeah, we're, we're, I'm looking to timeshare. I get a place <laughs> on the Thames for four minutes in August. <laughs> I, but seriously, very interesting, and, of course, some huge social consequences within the United Kingdom, and you can bring that over, not to all, but parts. Of the United Uncertainty States. Uncertainty is just the, uh, the overriding issue in yeah. all of um, every, every G4 country. You know, what is, with their Abinomics and the Bank of Japan, yeah. what's going to happen in the U.S. presidential election? Uh, is China going to yeah. you know, slow so much it hurts the rest of the world again? Yeah, what we're trying to do, folks, with a, with a slow news flow, to be perfectly honest, is stay abreast of what's going on each and every day. Venezuela over the weekend is one example, but also brief you across economics, finance, investment, and international relations on the themes that will get us there, certainly to Brexit. And before that, the June 15th meeting. Mike, when is the July meeting? I don't even know. You're taking off the month of July, right? Uh, I think I will have to be here for uh, July. July is always important. 27. Even though the meeting, which is July 27th, the decision day is July 27th, uh, probably the week before that, you'll have um, Janet Yellen giving her Humphrey Hawkins testimony, and that will be extraordinarily widely Interesting. And in around that will be GDP, I think, after July 27. We'll probably see that uh, as well. The market this morning in one big churn, yen 108.79, euro 113.39, euro yen showing stronger euro, weaker yen. That's a, that's a reversal from the recent days, but a churn all in all, 123.36. Futures are just flat. There's no other way to put it. Equity futures flat. Michael McKee and Tom Keene. Bringing you another hour worldwide, coast to coast, Bloomberg Surveillance.